welcome to Harlow on Healthcare. I'm David Harlow, and I invite you to join me by my virtual hearth as I sit down with healthcare leaders to discuss building the future of healthcare. Today, my guest is Natalie Davis, CEO of United States of Care and a former senior official in the Obama administration's Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Welcome, Natalie, and thank you for joining us again here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great. So I would ask to kick things off, if you could give us an elevator speech introduction to United States of Care. I'm happy to. So United States of Care is a wonderful organization, if I may say so. We are five years old, and we are charting a path on how to build a more people-centered healthcare system. To that and to us, it means we need to do change differently. We need to root the changes we see in our healthcare system based on the needs of people across this country and put them at the center of really what we call systemic change. But to us, systemic change needs to be personal. Brass tacks, what that means is that we have gone across the country and talked to thousands and thousands of people in every single state about their experiences with the healthcare system what is working, what isn't, and what they want out of the healthcare system. And we have ma- we have gone through and after talking to people, found the commonalities across demographics, political, race, ethnicity, income, geography, et cetera, to show where do people agree on what they want out of the healthcare system and how do we build that roadmap, that agenda for change? And that's what we've done. So United Solutions for Care, we published about a year ago. It has the four goals that people across this country have to build a more fair healthcare system and the 12 targeted changes that they say will bring them peace of mind, better health, and more relief in their pocketbook. So that's United States of Care. We run state and federal campaigns to change legislation and regulation. We have what we like to call an innovation lab where we build new policy working with everyday people, with people across the healthcare system with policymakers um, that we can then deploy out into the state and federal campaigns to make sure that not only are we changing laws right now, but we're building that path to a better, more fair healthcare system. Thank you. For those of you interested in taking a deeper dive, you can scroll back through the Harlow on Healthcare archives and find an earlier conversation that I've had with Natalie about some of the work that her organization has been doing. So, Coming up to date, in the in recent months, we have seen some what I'll start by just calling interesting activity in the preventive health space and the courts. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about preventive care generally, Uh, the value of preventive care. I think most listeners would understand at a visceral level the value of preventive care, but we have had long history in this country of not necessarily spending money appropriately on preventive care, and some of that was changed with the Affordable Care Act. So tell us a little bit about how that happened, what those changes looked like. 
Yeah, I'm so happy to join the podcast today again, David, and talk about this really important issue that I don't think, from what I've seen, has gotten a lot of national attention, and I think it deserves that. But that's because there's a lot of stuff going on. Like you said, preventive services and preventive care in this country really is needs to be the backbone of how we think about our healthcare system, how we think about as individuals living as healthy of a life as possible, as we think about communities thriving, children thriving, employers and employees thriving, catching issues before they become a big deal or preventing them in, to start with really is the core of how we can stay a healthy country. Since, like you said, the Affordable Care Act, which just now is our healthcare system. So in our healthcare system, we have a mandate, a requirement for insurers that they need to offer no-cost preventive services to people to, to show the importance of preventive care. This is one of the most popular aspects of our healthcare coverage across demographics and party line. Uh, Morning Consult recently put out a survey and nearly one in four respondents said that preventive care is the most important service that insurance plans can cover under the, can cover. It really isn't a red issue or a blue issue or it has any hold from a political party. It's just good health and good sense that insurers need to cover this. And since then, since this has been a requirement over 10 years, we've seen no-cost cancer screenings become available and cancer deaths have dropped by 17%. HIV infections have decreased by 73% since the mid-1980s, thanks in part to access to preventive medication like PrEP that are covered now. So there, we, the list could go on and on, but as you've started, it's such an important part of our healthcare system. It's something that people have come to rely on. You show up to the doctor, you talk about the preventive services that you need based on your age and your risk levels, and it's covered and you don't have to think about that. And that's so important because we know when we used to have to think about it, when you had to wonder if you had to pay for your mammogram, people put that off. It wasn't something that you budgeted for. It wasn't something that you knew exactly what was going to cost. And so people avoided preventive care and that it's just not the way that our healthcare system should work. And it's not how people should have to live their lives of putting off this preventive care based on a financial issue. And I think we can't emphasize this enough. It's not just that the care is covered, but you've said it twice and I'll say it again. It's at no cost, no deductible, no cost sharing of any kind with the individual. One end of the spectrum, you might say, gee, that's expensive. On the other hand, of course, if it's applied in a sensible way for preventive services that are worth rolling out across the board, then purely on a financial level, it's a cost savings in the long run. Absolutely. And it's a cost saving if we think about work missed because somebody is sick and something that we could have caught before. If you think of a longer life, a healthier life, less medications, it's a cost saver and it's a lifesaver. When we talk to people across the country and we talk about insurance, people talk about they want the certainty they can afford their health care and they want dependable coverage as their life changes. 
those words are from people's mouths and they emotionally resonate with people. And this kind of gets to the heart of what you were saying is it's not just that you don't have to pay for these preventive services, but it's that you can show up and know that they are covered. That if your doctor suggests it, it's covered. And it's that certainty that people have come to rely on and their coverage is dependable as their life changes and their health changes. So everything that you've said, as well as the mental kind of frustration or anguish or confusion that this sort of requirement on insurers has really alleviated for people, for parts of our healthcare system. Yeah. So at least monetarily and philosophically, maybe the other side of the coin could be expressed best as, well, not everybody who doesn't get preventive service X is going to come down with disease Y, right? And maybe in the future, we'll have more finely tuned genetic tests, et cetera, to say, if you if this test shows thus and so for you and you, then you get this service and the rest of you don't because you're never going to have a clinical manifestation of the disease, right? And so we, we can focus our spend more accurately, right? But we do tend to offer preventive services to, at least in, in theory, to more people than quote unquote really need them. And that is perhaps at the crux of the challenge to some of the preventive service coverage that is included in the Affordable Care Act. Are there other pieces of the challenge that has been brought forward? Yeah, should I go into the to the court case and talk a little bit yeah. about that? In this case, Braidwood. So tell us about that, please. Yes, there, like you said, the legal name for the case is Braidwood versus Becerra. And really, this is a court case out of Texas where there was there is a decision that is going to impact 151 million people in this country. That's anybody who has private insurance. So if you get your insurance through your employer, you are part of this group who will be impacted by this ruling where the judge has said it no longer can insurers be required to cover preventive services at no cost to people. So this eliminates people's no-cost access to important preventive services that we know keep people healthy. These are cancer screens, some blood pressure screening, mental health screening, screenings or that are really important to women as they are pregnant. And this is such an important part of our healthcare system, like we just talked about. It's also extremely popular. And this is going to deter people seeking care. So even if we think we can afford a screening now or some sort of preventive care, we know from the history of this country that people still just avoid that care because they're worried that they can't afford it. So a recent survey showed that two in five adults will now skip necessary preventive services if it meant they had to pay for them. So two in five adults will say, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to skip it. And we know that in instances like this, as always, the underserved, the people who are not listened to are hit the hardest. So historically, underserved communities will be disproportionately impacted. People with low incomes, even a small copay we know deters them from seeking preventive services. So through this ruling, we will see a higher incidence of health deterioration, and we will see healthcare disparities exacerbated. 
communities of color, LGBTQ communities that are going to be hit especially hard. This could lead to higher transmission of diseases because we are not catching things early or giving the medication to prevent them. So this is a really big deal and it's gone unnoticed at the moment because so much was happening when this ruling came out in the news. Right now, the Biden Department of Justice has put in a request for a stay, basically to say this can't go into effect until there's more that happens in the courts, which was granted, but there's still ongoing discussions in the Fifth Circuit Court. And we do expect, unfortunately, that this will likely go to the Supreme Court and be the next Supreme Court case in 2024 or 2025. This is a big deal. And we need to continue to put pressure on the courts to fix this, to make sure that 151 million people can have access to these preventive services that we've come to rely on for over a decade. Yeah. And it's just worth noting that it's interesting yeah, I'll just use the word interesting here, that we're still seeing fundamental challenges, the Affordable Care Act, 10 years out. So yeah, so the trial court decision has stayed pending appeal. So it's in federal appeals court, Fifth Circuit, you said, and yep. uh, waiting to hear, and of course, likely to hit the Supreme Court as well before this is resolved. So we've really taken this, what sounds like a super sensible public health tool, and it's become, some would say, a political football, and it's tied up in the courts for now. We'll continue on this in a moment, but first I just want to say, if you're just tuning in, this is Harlow on Healthcare, coming to you on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm David Harlow, and my guest today is Natalie Davis, CEO of United States of Care. So Natalie, this case, was this about a particular condition or a particular kind of treatment, or is this sort of a broad challenge to the rules that we're talking about? It started with a challenge to a very specific part, which is access to PrEP, which is a really important drug in the HIV, the fight against HIV and AIDS. It is. It was then expanded into the authority for a certain body, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, who in the Affordable Care Act was named to say which preventive services based on really good evidence. This is a body of physicians and scientists who look at the evidence and say that these services, these screenings are effective and are something that all people should have access to. And so it really was the court cases going towards the responsibility. Does this body have the responsibility to be able to make these cases? That's like the legal grounds on it, but it is a very clear attack on preventive services. And and like you said, the Affordable Care Act, which this could sound for me personally, having worked at sea and for the government and implementing the Affordable Care Act, what I'm going to say actually I feel has nothing to do with my pride in working for the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, but 
we are now over a decade of this just being our healthcare system. And I think there are times where we do a disservice to our current healthcare system by piecing out what is from the Affordable Care Act and what is not. It's really probably the only legislation that people across the country know by our people talking about the Inflation Reduction Act and how that is going to change how drugs are paid for by Medicare. No, they're just talking about the benefits and like you said, this feels this is very much an attack on that legislation, though it is just our healthcare system right now. And it has made it really strong improve this law made really strong improvements on our healthcare system. Um, but I think we can now say this is just an attack on the people and the healthcare that we've come to rely on. And uh, the point is well taken that it's really, this is the system. It's not a piece of legislation. It's our system as a whole at this point. But there are... Other changes afoot in our system. Here we're talking about a pending court case. And I want to ask you to handicap the the outcome here because there's certainly many variables. And there are other changes that have happened in the past six months, including recently the end of the public health Mm -hmm. emergency. So whether or not it's the end of my my preferred approach to talking about it is that we've entered the next normal and there will be another next normal in the future. And I don't know what that will look like, but at least for now, things seem to be better than they were earlier and the public health emergency is over. That's had a lot of implications across the healthcare system. One thing that I think is relevant to or related to this conversation about removal of access to certain kinds of care for certain people, here in the Braidwood case, we're talking about employer health plan covered individuals. The other thing I'm thinking about is the change to access to Medicaid coverage and basically some redeterminations of eligibility rules were basically waived during the public health emergency. And now those rules have snapped back. And there's some folks who may wake up one day after going into a doctor's office and find out that they no longer have coverage. Is that a fair assessment of how people may be finding out this? That is a fair assessment. And I think that it dovetails with what we talked about with the Braidwood case in that many people are going to be facing threats on their health care in two fronts, or at least their families will. The, As you said, with the end of the public health emergency declaration, there was a unwinding is what they're calling it of the public health emergency. And that meant that the prevent, you know, the there was a time during the pandemic where we said if you the country said if you are enrolled in Medicaid, you are now enrolled in Medicaid, and we are not going to ask you to submit documentation to see if you are still eligible for Medicaid. And that was so important, of course, during a pandemic, especially so people and especially children didn't lose this really important coverage during a global pandemic. So we now with the public health emergency ending. There is a time where states now are allowed to redetermine people to see if they're still eligible for Medicaid. What has been so important is understanding how many more people were enrolled in Medicaid during the pandemic. And it was 
such an important time to get people on coverage, to get them on continuous coverage, the, because for many factors, people, they call it churn, like people churn in and out of Medicaid, they, they're on and then they are either get another job and then they're disqualified because of their income and then they get new, but maybe that's a seasonal job. And so then they're back down on Medicaid, lots of different circumstances. And so it's been really great period of time to watch what happens if you don't make people redetermine constantly throughout the year. And there's been a lot of people that were able to get coverage that weren't a continuous coverage that weren't able to beforehand. So yes, that's where we are right now. States are figuring out if people are still eligible. And unfortunately, there have been a lot of people that have been kicked off of Medicaid. And a lot of that is just about documentation and getting people not aware that there is a change happening and that they would need to re-enroll. May survey from Kaiser Family Foundation found that 65% of Medicaid recipients were unaware that states would be redetermining coverage. In Florida, Arkansas, and Indiana, which began terminations in April, more than 80% of those disenrolled so far saw their coverage terminated just because information was not updated with the state, not because they were ineligible. So really, this is an exercise in bureaucracy and paper and not not in some states trying to have people retain and remain on this really important coverage for families and kids. So it's, yeah, so it's a quote unquote a technicality. It's not that somebody is now earning enough to no longer be eligible for Medicaid. I know there's been a variety of ways in which people have tried to do outreach to folks. And I suppose this is experienced unevenly depending on what state you live in or depending on whether you've been in a managed Medicaid plan previously or a variety of other variables. So here, as in the situation with the Braidwood scenario, it is really, again, uh, it sounds like a case of uh, disparate impact, right? So there's some principle here that is being articulated as we need to determine eligibility, but the impact is on folks who are hurt the most or, or likely to be hurt the most by any such redetermination. Absolutely. These are often populations, like you said, that are often disproportionately impacted and they are hard to considered hard to reach populations. People with immigrants or people with that that have limited English proficiency that speak other languages, people with disabilities, young adults, children, black and Latino communities, the process to to fill out these paperwork to make think about when you've had to fill do bureaucratic documentation and how hard it is to understand it and the forms you need and how you submit them. And if you're somebody without stable housing or without a stable cell phone number, um, you're just, you're working a couple of jobs, let's say, or you're, you're busy, you're living a life. This sort of pause without knowing it's happening and also being a really, in some states, really onerous paperwork process. It's, it is disproportionately impacting people that, that often are left behind and that really depend on Medicaid for their coverage. There are some states that are doing this really well, that are doing everything they can over the years. They've been updating their their databases with other public programs in the state. 
who that have waived some of the requirements on how often people have to submit, that have, are reaching out to people in at job fairs, libraries, using enrollment assisters that speak other languages. So there's a lot of best practices here if a state wants to really wants to make sure that people who are eligible are able to stay on. So that leads to my next question, which is how do these situations feed into a strategy or an approach for you and your organization that's maybe not specific to these particular areas of concern? Maybe it is specific, but yeah. th there's a bigger story. There are other threads that are not dissimilar to these threads. And what's the response? How do we get to a better place? Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity and the question. So one thing at United States of Care, we are at the center of this Braidwood versus Becerra case to make sure that the courts fix this, that people are aware of it, and that states actually are aware that there is legislation that they can pass to shore up some parts of the Affordable Care Act provisions to make sure that on some of these aspects that they set a floor that is in their state and not just out of a, a federal a federal act. So we are working with states to, we've been testifying in front of legislators and helping them put together bills to, to shore up a lot of these aspects. So I'm really proud of the team and the work that we've done. We have a resource hub on our website, unitedstatesofcare.org, that talks a lot about what's happening in the court case, how people can talk about this to, to others, but also how the court needs the impact this will have, but how the court also needs to fix this. We also are doing a lot of work in different states more broadly to make sure that more people have access to affordable insurance and affordable care. And so we're just wrapping up a successful legislative season where we have worked in several states and successfully passed legislation to make sure that people have more access to affordable insurance. In Colorado, that is also for people who don't have immigration status or U.S. immigration status. So we're continuing to make sure that people all people can have coverage as they need it. We have been working in other states to, to, again, make sure that there's insurance. Minnesota just passed legislation related to a public option. The cost of care, the affordability is the number one issue, and that comes in so many different directions. So we've been working in several states and in Congress to make sure some of the costs that are directly incurred by people if they visit, it's a, an off-campus clinic that a hospital may own to make sure that people aren't incurring extra costs when they go visit what they think is just a part of their system, but actually they're charged more for just walking into this sort of facility. We, we wake up every day figuring out how we can make sure that people have more access to insurance, to have more affordable coverage, to have more affordable care. And that's what drives our team. We're also doing a lot of work as we think about the maternal health outcomes in this country, especially for Black women. And Black women and women of color deserve to have joyful pregnancies and joyful deliveries and joyful time with their newborn. And that is often not the case, whether they're facing racism in the healthcare system, not being listened to, or really scary health conditions like preeclampsia or other deadly moments during this journey. And there's a lot we need to 
do at this country to figure out how to fix that. There are so many people working on this and we're arm in arm and currently working with Deloitte to find out where do people, especially Black women, fall through the system and who can be catching them and what policy we can enact to, to change that. And of course, because we're at United States of Care, we're also listening to people. And we are doing a lot of work of listening to Black women to understand their experiences and how the healthcare system can do better. And all of our policy work in this space is rooted in what we hear from women of color and especially Black women. Well, I was going to say that I wish that you put yourselves out of business by succeeding. <laughs> Me too. But uh, I'm, I'm afraid that we'll, uh, we'll be having this conversation for some time to come. Well, thank you for that. I can't wait. I, that would be great, wouldn't it? I would love to, to come on here and announce to your listeners that we have that we're done yeah, and, and we healthcare yeah. system is <laughs> people centered. <laughs> right. One day. Thank you One very day. much for joining me today, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me on again. You have been listening to Harlow on Healthcare. Join us at healthcarenowradio.com. Let's continue the conversation on building the future of healthcare together at hashtag Harlow on HC. I'm David Harlow, keeping the fire going and holding a seat open for you. Until next time. <laughs>